Hello, all. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this podcast. And thank you for joining me here on the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. And today we're going to be talking about the Holy Grail. Sorry, this microphone is acting weird. Today we're going to talk about the Holy Grail, and I'm super, super excited. Now, this is normally something that I talk about um, on the side of other things. So usually when I'm doing, uh, let's say, a lecture on Christianity or a lecture on, uh, a lecture on symbolism and Christianity, um, and sometimes, actually, in one of my courses, I also do a lecture on Mary Magdalene and the Virgin Mary. So this is in theory, a little bit different than perhaps some of the other conversations that we've had about goddesses. But the very fascinating aspect of this is that this connects to goddesses and in fact connects to everything we've talked about this season in its usual fantastic way, right? So you know how I always tell you guys, like I I start something and I'm like, yeah, this looks interesting or something comes up and I'm like, I'll look this up. And then I start digging and I start looking at things and I'm like, no, I have to talk about this. I have to um, share some of the information I've come across. And so the Holy Grail is really fascinating in that way as well. And my favorite part, I think about doing objects or symbols, like, you know, we've done caves and we've done triangles and we've done all that stuff. My favorite part about that is the way that it is applicable in our modern day society My favorite part about it is the way that the archaic, ancient, the sort of primordial continues to connect to us today, or we continue to connect to it without even noticing. And I really, really like that's really the part that I feel truly passionate about. And of course, the goddess is is fundamental in all of those things. But um, the connections and the way that it's applicable and the ways that perhaps we don't think about the way that it's applicable um, is my favorite part in Discovery. Um, And so if you're new to the podcast or you've never listened to me before, hello, I want to say that this podcast is unedited. I don't know if I said that before. It's totally unedited. Um, Every now and then I will pause my recording uh, to either review my notes or see what's coming next or whatever, or grab a drink if it's for going on for a bit. Uh, But it's totally unedited because, because honestly, I'm unedited. Um, I always wanted to be, so my mentor in academia, Professor Barry Wilson, uh, is, was, is, and was a professor that really embodied the way that I like to learn. And I like to learn in a way that is informal or appears to be informal and comfortable. And when the academic is, when the academic setting is more egalitarian. So that that means that I recognize that you know more or you're an expert in the field, but but you don't treat me like, a child or a teenager or like high schooly. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but I like to learn in an, in an informal setting more with respect and conversation and discussion um, rather than sort of a being lectured at, although, you know, there's time for that as well. And so 
Long way of saying, this is why I like this to be informal because, and I think sometimes that costs me a bit because I think sometimes the fact that I'm informal in many ways, the fact that I'm kind of having fun and kind of ranty and I go off, sometimes people, how do I say this nicely? I don't know. Sometimes people think I don't know all the things I know, or I feel like people feel like they're on par that their opinion and my knowledge are on par. And so sometimes that costs me a bit. I know that there are very strict uh, old-fashioned professors that their automatic demeanor and their formality gains them a kind of hush respect in the sense that students don't question, students don't ask, students are like, yes, for sure, you're an expert. That also happens if there are white males. But um, for me, sometimes, because I'm having fun with this thing, um, and I want us to have discussions. For me, sometimes the opposite happens where it it can get a little bit, mm, people push the boundaries of, of professionalism. So informal professional, I think, is a great way of doing it. For this podcast, of course, because this podcast is totally outside the academe, but I am an academic. And so that's not something you can take away from someone. I had, I had a a little back and forth today, sorry for the side story, with a woman in one of the Facebook groups. I posted something and uh, I posted a sculpture of Artemis and her reply was, uh, oh no, this is Diana. Uh, she came before, the, her name Diana came before the Greeks and, the, and she was Roman and blah, blah, blah. And she just went on this kind of thing. And I, again, I replied giving her some, just a short, brief history of the fact that at least we should agree that the Greeks came before the Romans. Um, but no, she was like, no, that's wrong. You know, all these people that think they know stuff they don't know. And, uh, I'm, I'm a little fascinated by that. The, the fact that, <sighs> sorry, I'm trying to be nice. The fact that, you know, 10 years of study and reading and translation you think this individual thinks equals their whatever time might be they spend on the internet or whatever knowledge they've come across. Sometimes to me, it's a bit mind boggling. Uh, and while I, I'm totally into questioning authority and questioning knowledge and questioning facts or truth, because that's part of learning, there has to be some form of balance there. There has to be some type of, um, respect I guess in a way for the quantity of work you have to do to get to a certain point yeah um especially in academia to the highest point you know in the case of a PhD of knowledge and and so that's not saying that there's absolutely that you know you're absolutely 100% right or there's no room for discussion or questioning but I just think that there are some things that um that you're an expert in and that's all there is to it and and so um and that's fine. So I don't mean to rant at you guys. I'm not ranting at you guys, but I just, uh, I had this conversation this morning and I think it's still in my head because I just couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that you think the Romans came before the Greeks and they named her Diana out of a complete mistranslation of both Greek and Latin that she sent me. Anyways, I take Artemis things a bit personally. <laughs> Sorry. 
um, I'm pretty angry at academics, I think, for for ignoring her and for misrepresenting her and for all those things. And so sometimes when people come at me with things that are just mind bogglingly wrong, um, I I sometimes get a little, it stays in, it stays with me for a bit, but, um, but I will let it go now. Thank you for listening to my short rant. Um, but <laughs> I'm sorry if you're new and this is your first time ever listening to me. Uh, I apologize for coming out of the gate full force. Uh, but if you are new, welcome. And I hope that you enjoy, like I said, this, this very informal discussion uh, about this week, the Holy Grail. This is episode 118. So we have one more episode next week. And then we have our fi- our finale question and answer episode, which is really awesome. I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to it. So next week, we're going to do Sirens and Mermaids. Because I want to talk about that. And I keep coming across sirens everywhere. And so it's like, that's a sign. So so our uh, 19th episode will be on sirens and mermaids. And then uh, we'll have the question and answer. So I'm collecting lots of questions from people on social media, or they're just DMing me questions that they want to ask about literally anything, really. Um, and I'm going to um, to film my answers and discussions to those questions. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um that will be in two weeks from now. And then school is starting. So we'll take a little break. That'll be the season finale. The university is starting uh, after Labor Day. And so it'll be a bit chaotic for a bit. And then we'll start with season two later on in the fall. Yeah. Um, And if you've been with me for a while, thank you so much. Um, For those of you that listen to this podcast religiously, I just want to say how much I appreciate you. You know who you are. We talk on Twitter. We talk on Instagram. um, We talk in the YouTube comments every now and then, and on the goddess, we talk everywhere. Um, I just want to say thank you to you because when I started this podcast in March, I wasn't sure what I was doing. <laughs> I still am not, but wasn't sure what I was doing. Wasn't sure if people were interested. Uh, wasn't sure if people would enjoy my style of just like talking about things and connecting things in different ways. Um, and so I really just want to say thank you. Uh, for those of you who support me on Patreon, uh, we're going to do after the podcast. We're going to talk about Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. Uh, for those of you who support me on Patreon, I just want to shout out a special thank you because your continued support allows me to continue doing this research and continue doing this podcast and the books that I'm writing and all those kinds of things. Uh, it helps me take some time away from teaching and focus on research. So thank you so much. So just those are, you know, thank you so much to everyone. And and of course, thank you to everyone listening um, and and watching this. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the Holy Grail. I'm going to pull up if you're listening to me. Um, I'm just going to pull up my slides if you're watching. Uh, give me one second and I'm going to pull these up. So we're going to do a little bit of a circular is the right one? Yes. Yes, it is. A circular sort of presentation. Um, I call this episode The Blood is the Life because, first of all, I love that. That's a very vampiric Hollywood thing to say. The blood is the life, right? Um, and in fact, I really wanted to connect the Holy Grail to vampires. Uh, maybe I will at the end a little bit, or maybe in the after the podcast, we'll talk about it because we're talking about uh, the Grail in Hollywood. But because the grail has so much um, eternal life, blood connotations, drinking blood, those kinds of things, this phrase just kept echoing over and over, right? The blood is the life, yeah? 
Um, and that's a very vampiric thing. And because, you know, I, I, as a Romanian, I come from a country where vampires are said to have been born. And so every time we talk about blood drinking or blood letting or blood anything, and even impaling, if we're talking about Vlad the Impaler, uh, I can't help but think vampire, 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 right? Uh, and so uh, the blood is the life is the title of this, the Holy Grail myths and symbols. And we're going to begin with something very, very simple that reconnects us to past episodes. Uh, and we're going to talk about the pubic triangle. So here, uh, if you're not watching this, on the screen, I have an image of the cup, the sort of Holy Grail cup with a... Um, I don't know what that is, a piece of cloth over it, folding over almost like long years. Yeah. And then, of course, a picture of the uh, female reproductive system, the uh, uterus with the fallopian tubes, ovaries um, you, and cervix and vagina, whatever. And the reason why I pulled this image up and you could Google these images anywhere. Um, and actually, I think I posted uh, this image on my Instagram is because the cup itself, the very first association, okay, before we get into the legends, the very first association between the cup that's filled with the blood of Christ that gives life, the, the very first and basic association is that the female uterus or the whole reproductive system, but the female uterus with the blood of the divine feminine, I'm going to go with, okay? Um, that gives life is literally the symbol that the cup or the Holy Grail represents. But the issue that I'm going to have in this episode is the very fact that once again, we have an attempt by patriarchy to literally remove the power of the uterus and the reproductive blood, put it into an object that is often depicted in a fantastically gold or expensive form and then use it by men for men to create and give life and to create and give salvation and to create and give a kind of rebirth. Yeah. So again, um, the conquering, the taking of the divine feminine symbols in this one of reproduction and life-giving becomes the um, property of patriarchy. Yeah? And so the very first thing I think that we need to make clear is, of course, the use of pubic triangles. Now, in my episode on the caves, I did talk a lot about pubic triangles and how the pubic triangle is literally an inverted triangle and how this was the original triangle before even the pyramids and before any the way before those triangles were actually inverted actually the, my very language around that is wrong because the pyramids themselves so the triangle facing up should be called the inverted triangle because the original triangle is upside down yeah uh but i guess in the english language or in any language that's the the upside down triangle has become secondary you know when it was primary um, and so the cup itself, even if you just think of a cup as sort of a V, right, or a U, the cup itself can be seen as an inverted triangle, um, or in the case of my argument, a pubic triangle. And the fact that the, this cup holds blood that you drink um, is, and that gives you salvation or eternal life, 
or life um, is literally the uterus. I don't know if that could that could be, you know, made any clearer. Now the Holy Grail itself, okay. So the 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 supposed cup, the Holy Grail, is traditionally thought to be the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. We're going to talk about it in a minute, and that Joseph of Arimathea used to collect Jesus's blood at his crucifixion. So from ancient legends all the way to like I said, Indiana Jones, which we're going to talk about in a minute, this cup has been a symbol of fascination and mystery uh, for men actually no okay sorry now that i'm thinking about it it is fascination for men now last night if you follow me on instagram i posted a little clip from indiana jones where um the rich dude whose name i can't remember comes to indy and says you know you want to look for this cup we've almost found this cup and indy's like oh it's a bedtime story blah 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 and then the guy says this is the dream of men the goal of men every man wants this cup and i posted that on purpose because I thought to myself, yes, because when you have when you live in a body that literally is a holy grail, that is a reproductive cup with blood of birth, you don't need to drink from a cup. Okay. Uh, although we'll talk about why women drink from the cup anyways, especially in uh, within Christianity, not especially but within Christianity. And so we we and I'm speaking about those who live in uh, in uh women's biological bodies or female biological bodies we don't need a cup to drink to procreate we just do that naturally right uh so when i say that this has been an object of fascination for centuries i mean for for men yeah uh, lots and lots of people have have hunted and sought after this christian relic and we're going to look at two uh main stories other than the last supper and that is the knights templar and uh arthurian legend yeah uh, now, the actual word itself, grail, some people say probably comes from the Latin word gadale, uh, which refers to like a deep platter that, or a deep bowl where foods are are served in. And especially during the medieval banquets, uh, they would have these deep bowls or deep chalices. Yeah, uh, it, it could be anything. It's been described often as a dish or a chalice or platter or a goblet, anything. Right. Sometimes it's even described as a stone, which is a bit interesting. Um, and this grail has been said to have miraculous healing powers. Okay. Uh, now, some historians argue that this kind of idea has been traced back to pre-Christian Celtic mythology. I agree. I think it's even more further back than that. I would say it's pre-Christian, literally any mythology. Um, it may not have been called the Holy Grail, but womb wisdom, womb knowledge, womb power, all of those words. Um or, or concepts, maybe more than words, have been around, you know, even in primordial tribal culture. And so it's the symbol itself is quite, quite archaic. Yeah. Um, now, the, the quest for the Holy Grail first made it into written text in 1180. So we're going to talk about that. That's when the, uh, the stories started uh, becoming more and more, I guess, fascinating. Um, and um an author called Robert de Baron specified its Christian significance around the 1200s, around the same time in his poem, Joseph de Arimathea, uh, in which um, he claims that, again, this Holy Grail originated at the Last Supper and um, at Christ's death. And so there is a lot of mystery that we're going to talk about that 
the mystery that was created and then built upon in order to make it appear as though this is something new or something different than um, the ability of women to naturally create life. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to talk about Arthurian legends as well as the Knights Templar uh, and perhaps maybe even the recent discovery. There's been a re recent discovery of a cup um, that was dated to around the time of Jesus. Uh, so we're just going to look a little bit at um, what what that cup may have been. Yeah. But let's start with the Last Supper. So on the screen, I have an image of the Last Supper by Da Vinci. If you've ever seen the Da Vinci Code, I think that, um, or heard of the Da Vinci Code, the movie or the book, I think that that sort of uh, sums up popular culture ideology about medieval culture ideology about the Holy Grail. So at the Last Supper, um, Jesus is said to have drank. I'm sorry, drank from a cup and also like held a piece of bread. And in in that moment, he says, uh, you know, eat the bread of my body and you will be saved. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> and then he takes a cup and says, this is the blood of my blood. Drink it and you will be saved. OK, so these are the two items. And within Catholicism and later on other Christianities, um, these two items become part of the Eucharist um, that um, Christians celebrate at mass. So when you go to mass, for example, if you're a Catholic or in my case, I went, I was, I was raised Greek Orthodox. And then when we came to Canada, I became, uh, I became Roman Catholic. My parents were, one was one and one was the other. Um, in the Greek Catholic and the Greek Orthodox church, we used to literally have the wafer, which represents the bread, but then we used to also drink from a cup wine. Okay. So the wine is what Jesus is said to have transformed into into his blood now this also for me echoes a bit of Circe and witchcraft the idea that you can transform uh wine into blood and i actually recently participated in a meditation um event online that was part of um this temple oh man i'm sorry i can't remember the name of the temple but it was like the temple of the womb something like that and there was this discussion, of course, about menstrual blood and how menstrual blood is sacred and was sacred, actually, for many ancient uh, tribes and practices. And um, the leader of this particular meditation and this particular ritual um, described how even today you can ritualistically transform wine into blood. So one of the things she was saying was, if you are an, a woman who is past the bleeding age, so you're in menopause or whatever, and so you can't collect your own moon blood, you can transmute a glass of wine into symbolic moon blood. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really fascinating because that's exactly what Jesus does at this dinner. You know, I mean, he transmutes the bread also into his body, which is already complex enough. And then he transmutes the wine into into blood, right? His blood. And so when you go to, some of you who are listening have probably been to mass if you're Christian. If you're not, you go to mass. And then for Greek Orthodox, like I said, you go up there and you take a wafer and you used to be able to drink from the cup. 
literally just take a sip of wine. I remember being a kid and, and looking forward to the sip of wine. And they used to actually have little crumpets of bread, you know, not the circular wafer that Roman the Catholics had. Um, and that was really just the continued ritual of the Eucharist and of this particular Last Supper. Um, and so the cup itself, of course, is, I guess, symbolically the Holy Grail, but obviously not. Um, but it was always like a gold fancy cup, yeah, which was always fascinating to me. And then in the Roman Catholic Church, I'm not sure when, probably some of you out there listening know, at some point they did, they no longer share the wine. I think they, I, like when you go to mass now, they hold up the wine. And again, the priest performs a kind of magic trick, right? Like the priest is kind of a wizard or a witch because the priest changes both the wine that he holds up and the wafers in theory into the body and blood of Christ. And then, um, so there's magic here, no, like, they, like, right. Like there's magic happening here. Um, there's transmutation happening here. Um, and so, Christians do practice magic, interestingly, and witchcraft. But anyways, um, and so you go up there and you're supposed to eat the wafer. And in the case, like I said, of Catholics, you don't drink the wine. But then you go back to your seat and you reflect on Jesus nourishing and entering your body. Okay. Um, and so this idea of nourishment, we're going to talk about in more detail. Because now, normally, the the only human well, the only body, human body, let's say, um, that nourishes another human body is the mother with child, right? So mothers feed their children from their bodies. Literally, when you're pregnant with a child, you, the child takes literally from you bone density and vitamins and all these kinds of things, right? But then even after the child comes into the world, your body is built to nourish it, uh, to, to, to raise it, to take care of it. And so up until, you know, certainly up until the Christian period, um, the only body that nourished another body <laughs> is a female. But within Christianity, with this um, ritual that Jesus does at the Last Supper, um, the nourishment becomes the, the job of the male. So Jesus, as the male, nourishes his disciples and in that sense, God, through Jesus, nour nourishes uh, his followers, the Christian God. Yeah. So really fascinating stuff. Now, I bring up the Last Supper by Da Vinci because this is what caused a great deal of um, controversy. And Da Vinci was a conspiracy theorist. I know today that has been become a taboo thing to say um, because I think a lot of people have taken this word this conspiracy theorist label and used it widely and randomly um yeah i think i'm not gonna go on a rant about that but da vinci himself was someone that was either part of a secret group um or um what we would today we would today for sure have called da vinci a conspiracy theorist now, if you look at this painting of the Last Supper, you can see that there is no cup on the table. Yeah, it is one of the only paintings and maybe the only painting, but don't quote me, uh, in which there is bread and other little cups around and some food. Um, and Jesus, of course, is in the middle of the of the table, but there is no cup. 
Now, for some, this suggests that da Vinci knew the true history. And uh, that was why Mary Magdalene is included in the painting instead. Now, this over here on the right of Jesus was said uh, by some, okay, that that is um, Mary Magdalene because of the feminine qualities of this individual next to Jesus. Now, some people say this is uh, Joseph, uh, right? His right-hand man. Um, so people have said that this is sort of a, a more feminine male. Um, I would say that Da Vinci followers and believers see this as Mary Magdalene. Now, as you know, that in the Da Vinci Code and in sort of Da Vinci lore, Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married. And my mentor, uh, Barry Wilson, wrote a book called The Lost Gospel, which is a fantastic book if you want to read it, uh, about a scroll that was found a little while back that confirms or can confirm that uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were um, married and had children. And so if you believe that, now this is, of course, heresy for the church, the Catholic church, especially because Jesus, for some random reason, the Catholic church believes that Jesus is celibate, despite the fact that Jesus within Jewish culture would not have been celibate because celibacy was not something that was part of Jewish culture. Um, and in fact, the commandments are to, you know, be fruitful and multiply. And so I think if you think of Jesus as a Jewish man, a Jewish prophet, a Jewish body walking around, you know, at in his own time um, with all of these followers. Now, we know, of course, there's more than 12. The 12 is a Roman Catholic invention. But, you know, he had 30, 40 followers that were with him all the time. And he was preaching and he was talking about all these things. And many of them were women or widows. So I think that there is a lot of logic that suggests that Jesus may have been married to Mary Magdalene and that they may have had children. Um, there's no, there's no evidence that has been admitted to at this time. And so whenever you have that kind of side evidence or evidence that some people believe, then that becomes all this conspiracy stuff. Um, and so, but to me as an individual and as an academic and as a Christian, it would not surprise me as an ex-Christian, it would not surprise me that Jesus uh, would have had an, a, a relationship with Mary Magdalene and it doesn't actually affect my belief in anything he said, right? Um, and so the tradition holds that the Holy Grail is actually the womb of Mary Magdalene. Because the womb of Mary Magdalene, if you believe that they were together, would have carried, of course, the bloodline of Christ. Um, and so there are some people who believe that even today, there are descendants of the Christ line. Now, I think that's purely logical because Jesus also had brothers and sisters. I know the Catholic Church makes them brothers and sisters in faith, but he had physical, literal brothers and sisters. And so if you think about the Christ family, then, or the Jesus family, uh, then that bloodline in theory is still around. Hopefully there was another documentary that was done. Um, I can't remember what it was called. I'll look it up 
guys, sorry. It was another one that was, was it the Gospel of James? Or the Lost Tomb of James? I don't know. Uh, It was a while back now, like maybe eight years ago, where they found a tomb that had... um, um boxes right burial boxes sorry words don't come easy to me uh burial boxes that had the names of people that correlated to the jesus family so there was a joseph um there was uh john there was a matthew there was i think everyone except jesus obviously um and then there were also ossuaries sorry ossuaries not boxes but ossuaries which are boxes where people put the bones of their dead Uh, So there was a tomb that had pretty much everyone in the Jesus family, in the immediate family, except, of course, for Jesus. And they did a bunch of uh, studies on the DNA of the bones to see how they were all related. And they were kind of they were related like the Jesus family would have been like his immediate family. And there was this big talk about how this would have been Jesus's family. And uh, there was a child in there. And there are people that who thought maybe this is Jesus's child. Um, But we don't have Jesus's DNA. And the names are quite popular at that time. So anyway, there's a there's a pros and cons to this video. But the reason why I bring that up to this documentary, the reason why I bring that up is because there is a lot of material that suggests that Jesus had this immediate family. Uh, of course, because of his culture, and he was a very religious Jewish man. Um, and one would say he was conservative conservatives i don't know if i would say orthodox jewish but certainly conservative jewish and he was definitely uh one of the what we would call today one of the pharisees and so or the rabbis or the teachers and so there's no reason to think that he wouldn't have had the drive the motivation to follow his own traditions and procreate and so out of that rationality or reasoning comes this idea that the holy grail itself the blood that gives life and salvation is the womb of mary magdalene right and so that so that's kind of that's really really fascinating there are some other um theories that say um that the holy grail is not actually a bowl but it's symbol and not just Mary Magdalene's womb carrying on this bloodline of Christ, but also represents the boat that Mary took to escape France to France. Because we know that after the after Jesus is crucified and every all of his disciples are are um uh, prosecuted, persecuted, both Mary's, the Virgin Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene disappear. Um, and so one of the theories is, of course, that Mary Magdalene goes to France. We'll talk about that in a minute with the Knights Templar. And according to legend, the boat that Mary Madeline escaped in didn't have oars or a mast, right? So this meant that it was an oval shape. Uh, there were no men on the boat, according to legend. Uh, and an oval-shaped boat was always associated with women. And so, again, this is another symbol of this kind of oval chalice bowl kind of type. type. And then the legend further expands in the belief that Mary Magdalene was associated with the Knights Templar. Um as we're going to see, the Knights Templar were said to have originated in Jerusalem um, and that Mary Magdalene began her association with them while she was still in Jerusalem herself. And then she she continued this association with the Knights Templars to Egypt, later on to the English village of Glast, Glat, Glastonbury. I know I'm saying that wrong. Sorry, my UK friends. Um, and so and some there is even some discussion that Mary Magdalene was trained as one of the Templars. 
And so again, and that the Templars, as we'll see, protected and were searching for the Holy Grail. And so the fact that Mary Magdalene, who is embodying the Holy Grail in this theory, is then protected by the tradition of the Knights Templar makes sense. Yeah. And so it's not that the um, Holy Grail is a um, golden cup or a golden chalice, but it's that Mary Magdalene's womb itself is the golden cup or the golden chalice. And this connects us back. I mean, so again, you don't have to believe this, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, this is not church, uh, nor is it some other type of um, religious uh, conviction. But I think that there is a, a way to think about these things um, in a way that makes, at least to me, a little bit of logical sense. And so then the Holy Grail, what's really interesting is then the Holy Grail is not a thing at all. Um, and it is, um, well, really what we just talked about before, the female body um, reproducing, in this case, the line of of Jesus. There was also another movie with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon that was called Dogma. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a great movie in which they're both angels. And what they're doing is they are also chasing down uh, the modern descendant of Jesus. And part of that is, of course, that she is a child of or a descendant of children of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And so that, that was really cool. So this is a long theory uh, like I said, Da Vinci was part of the secret kind of cult, underground cult that had access to Vatican records, supposedly, and that knew sort of where this line is. Now, to be fair, if such a line existed, I would have no doubt that in all of the years in which the Vatican chased down relics, information, documents about Jesus and his family and their line, that they would have evidence. I mean, yeah, that also makes sense. So there's a lot, like, but again, because we don't have these things, we can't really call them facts. So we call them theories or legends or ideas. And then it's up to each individual person to see what makes sense to them and what they believe. Um, but this one is a really cool one. And so um, I really love the Da Vinci Code. I mean, there are some parts that didn't make sense because the way they aligned the time, I mean, right? Like it's, it is fiction, <laughs> Right. The way they aligned the timeline and they shifted things around. And I was like, I don't know. But um, that book is fiction that's based on Da Vinci's. And like I said, some of these secret orders um, and secret groups. And, and we'll talk about them more. Oh, Knights Templar is next. So I think a lot of that comes out of the many, many secret societies that were built or created during the medieval period, um, because it was during that time. First of all, two things were happening during that time. Uh, the church, the church took control over all education. And so there was a great deal of illiteracy. There was a great deal of ignorance, uh, purposeful ignorance. That is a lack of education. And in fact, a discouragement of education. And so all of the progress that, for example, the Greeks and the Romans and everybody else in the world had made, you know, let's say in the last 5,000 years, and depends on what you believe, maybe even further back, all of that um, knowledge progress, let's call it that, was then shut down. And so the way I think about it, okay, is kind of like a funnel. I don't know if I've said this before. I apologize if I have. It's kind of like a funnel. Like 
in for me, for example, in the Minoan, Mycenaean, Greek, and even Roman period, right? Because I'm limiting myself to that time frame, the funnel was open, right? Like a like a wide V. Okay. And then with the dawn of Christianity, especially around 300, starting around 300 uh, CE, when the church canonized the New Testament or the Christian Bible, etc., there there began to be a funneling, which I call like the Dark Ages, a funneling, a tight, tight, tight funnel of control and ignorance and lack of knowledge and, in fact, destruction of knowledge. And then, and this is the time of the Knights Templar, and well, actually, this is also the time of Arthurian, Arthurian legend and all of these other things. And then, as we move forward through time in this dark tunnel, we get to the you know 1700s, 1800s, we get to the Enlightenment period, of course, we get to ugh, industrialization, um, and then to today, the funnel then opens up, you know, like another V opening up, right? And now, let's say in 2022, we are in the wider gap of this opening, okay? The wider gap of this opening. I, I, I will argue that we are not yet at the level of knowledge, education, open-mindedness of even the Greeks. In fact, I will argue, and I know some of you will probably argue with me, that we are not even at the level that the Romans had. Um, and we can do a whole podcast on that. What, how are the ancients living better than us? <laughs> In so many ways, I mean, the scheduling and the food and the religious freedom and other things, right? Like there's a lot to talk about. Um, not to say that there weren't um, issues, you know, of course, there always are. Anyways, don't want to get too sidetracked. But so the idea is that we are now back to opening up. And so now, especially actually with the printing press, when the actual Christian Bible became readable in all the languages, and in fact, the Roman Catholic Church believed that this was the way that they would get pe more followers. But what happened, of course, is when people started to read the text themselves, and I encourage you all, whether you're Christian or not, and you're interested to read the text for yourself, although it's always good to have an expert with you, but to read the text for yourself, once people started reading the text for themselves, they started to notice, of course, all of the issues with the text. And that's because really, when you write something down, everything can be questioned. Um, and so, and, and what actually happened, actually, there was a, a, surprisingly for the Catholic Church, what happened is when people began reading the book for themselves, they started breaking apart, right? They started wanting to break apart their own traditions to they interpreted the book differently. And like, that's where we are today. Everybody has their own interpretations or their own churches or their own sort of traditions that broke out of the Catholic church and, and, and other sections. And so all of that, basically all of what I've just said, basically um, is in part why we have so much secrecy and so much sort of, exploration and revelation in reading the book and in going back in time and looking at some of these um, religious secret cults uh, because we hadn't had the time or the opportunity or the freedom to know what they might have been doing or to analyze what they might have been thinking or any of that information. And so now we have that to some degree. It's still a big secret boys club, but we have some more more freedom of information and interpretation than we did before. 
Um, and that also has pros and cons. I know some of you are probably like, well, that's also not the best thing either, but we are where we are. So let's talk about the Knights Templar. Okay. Um, the Knights Templar or the order of the Knights Templar, uh, recognized in 1118, was first created by a French knight called Hughes de Paines. And acting on, um, sorry, Hughes de Paines formed this order of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ of the Temple of Solomon. That was sort of the uh, the original name. And then during the, the, the Crusades themselves, several European kingdoms came together under the banner of the Catholic Church so they could conquer Jerusalem, which really this was a pushback against the Muslim caliphate um, that was spreading throughout Europe and the Roman Catholic Church at first thought, oh, well, the the Muslim uh, caliphate, the Muslim religion is not really a threat to us. It's in the East, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, when they hit Spain, especially when they hit Spain, um, the Roman Catholic Church woke up and thought, holy crap, they're taking us over. And so they created these crusades, these uh, groups of soldiers and armies um, that were meant to certainly capture Jerusalem from the caliphate. Um, and they did. So in 1099, uh, they did. They captured Jerusalem from the caliphate for a while. And then pilgrims from Europe began making trips to Jerusalem once again. Christian pilgrims is, the, is what I'm saying. And uh, many, while making this journey, many pilgrims were robbed and murdered along the way. And so in, in order to supposedly protect these pilgrims, uh, Baldwin II, who was the ruler of Jerusalem, encouraged the formation of a new Calvary order. Now, the Knights Templar, this was the Knights Templar, set about their task with a camp on Jerusalem's Temple Mount in 1129. Okay. They got the blessing of the French Catholic Pope at the time, Pope Innocent II. He actually, in, he actually issued a papal bull in 1139 that exempted the Knights Templar for paying any taxes and declaring that they were only answerable to the, to the Pope. So they became a private army, right? Um, this allowed the Templars or the cult of the, or the army of the Templar to flourish. Um, and they soon became bankers to the monarchs of Europe and, uh, to the pilgrims by creating a system that allowed the pilgrims to deposit assets in their home countries, and then they could withdraw them in Jerusalem. So really fascinating story about the power and the growth of the Knights Templar. Uh, in a in recognition to to the amount of money and the wealth that the Knights Templar were collecting, um, they were also recognized for a strict code of conduct, which included an oath of poverty, obedience, as well as chastity. Okay, so that's really those three things are really fascinating because they were part of a wealthy cult that. Um, well, you know, today when I think about it, it's very much within that Christian monastery formula in the sense that, uh, how do I say this? The organization, the institution has the wealth, but the individuals live within this um, realm of poverty and chastity and obedience. They also wore this highly recognizable signature suit. You can see it in the image here, but you can Google it as well. That was a white robe decorated with a red cross. Now, I know I have some friends that are probably connecting the Red Cross with the Red Cross, and there probably is a bunch of stuff like that out there. Um, in fact, the cross itself, we can do a whole, you know, maybe three episodes on the cross itself as a symbol, because it's, of course, it's a pre-Christian symbol. 
uh, and the Red Cross even more so because, of course, red represents blood. And here's the Knights Templar looking for the Holy Grail and protecting the Holy Grail. Anyway, so much connections, right, guys? So much. Uh, in time, the Knights Templar expanded their influence as new chapters of the orders were formed. So they they grew, of course. And at the height of their power, they owned the island of Cyprus. But the Templars were the bankers to all of Europe's nobility. And they also owned a great, a large fleet of, she of ships, not sheep, ships. Uh, however, the Muslim Caliphate took back and reconquered Jerusalem in the late 12th century. And that really ended the uh, Christian control in the Holy Land. Okay. Now, what did the Knights Templars do with the loss of Jerusalem? Um, because they lost Jerusalem, the European nobility started to really question their security, their ability to secure their, uh, what do you call it, their um, their goods. And the, because the European nobility were also heavily indebted to the Knights Templars, they began asking or demanding a destruction of the order. So in 1303, so this is 200 years later, give or take a few years, King Philip IV of France embarked on a campaign to destroy the Order of the Knights Templar. Many say it was probably because he refused to give them, they refused to give him some more money. And then there was a bunch of mass arrests, torture, false confessions. You know how they do. Uh, they were followed by dramatic public burnings at the stake. Okay. False charges of devil worshiping heresy and fraud okay so pope clement v dissolved the knights templar in 1312 in theory okay publicly and in theory okay um now the some accounts state or the official accounts sorry some official accounts think that their property the property that the knights templar had gained for 200 years was given to another order of knights called the knights hospitallers and it is widely believed that King Philip and King Edward II of England expropriated most of the Knights Templar's wealth for their own benefits. Okay. So there is this, this, how do I say this? There's this really interesting up, right? Like up word scale where there is a rescue of Jerusalem, search for the Holy Grail, search for Christian relics. These Knights Templars ha hold these positions of honor. Then they hold positions of power. Then they hold too much power, especially once Jerusalem is lost. What do we do with all these individuals? And then many of them are destroyed, shamed publicly, um, dishonored, killed, etc. And their wealth is taken from them by other wealthy people. Yeah. Uh, historians do believe that the Knights Templar were probably most of the Knights Templars were annihilated, annihilated by King Philip. But groups such as the Freemasons have since emerged, claiming a connection to and a revival of the Knights Templar traditions. So we talked a little bit about the Freemasons in the past, just briefly, um, based on their use of the Sphinx for their temples and how they're sort of a not a secret cult, but a a private sorry cult is the wrong word well depends who you talk to but a private group yeah 
Um, now, Free Mainstry, of course, was developed, or the Free was developed 400 years later after the Knights, the fall of the Knights Templar. So it's difficult to really connect them. But I'm sure many of my friends who are really into this sort, this this history and the the records of this history, um, and and other uh, materials. Um, could probably connect and of course the freemasons themselves have their own records that connect them um to their own uh, to their knights templar traditions yeah now it is said that in antiquity the knights templar had discovered the holy grail from which jesus drank at the last supper but it was allegedly kept in a secret vault together with the ark of the covenant okay and so um there is this theory that some of the knights who are honorable enough, even to today, are guarding the Holy Grail and perhaps the Ark of the Covenant uh, because the Holy Grail is said to give eternal life. And this is sort of the the foundation of, of modern day legends and modern day stories. And so, again, this idea, right, that an army of men, of trained men, guard this chalice that is said to give life or eternal life or healing or has powers. Uh, now, the Ark of the Covenant it said, is said to be in um, or held by the Ethiopian. It's also said to be held by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um Last I heard, they were the ones claiming to have it, but of course you can't see it. Um, and so there's some fascinating things going on here. There's a lot of mystery around this. Now, of course, the greatest mystery is that, in my opinion, this cup doesn't exist because it's not a cup. It is literally the body, the, the, the reproductive body of women and power of women um, shaped into a symbol an object, a physical object, and then passed down through history as a real thing. Um, but that's my own, yeah, my own interpretation. If anyone knows or has seen or has any ideas of where this might be today, that would be fantastic. Please share it in the comments. Um, I'd love to learn more about it. Um, and this brings me to Arthurian legend. So Arthurian legend um, is a little bit short. I mean, it's not, um, I mean, King Arthur again is, uh, in a way, a problematic character because there's a lot of mystery around his own existence itself and the very fact of did he really exist? Was he a real person? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there is some interesting medieval legends around the power and the and the ongoing search of King Arthur. So there are a few legends around and a few sort of origin stories around how the Holy Grail ends up um, in the area or is connected to King Arthur. So some Arthurian legends claim that Joseph of Arimathea himself brought the, the grail to Glastonbury in England, like we've talked about. Uh, one legend has, says that on the spot where he buried the grail, so he buried the grail somewhere, the water runs red because it travels through Christ's blood. And there is a spot in Glastonbury, England, where uh the water is red, but scientists agree that this is just the effect of the red iron oxide in the soil. Um, others believe that the Knights Templars themselves brought the Holy Grail and hid it uh, in Glastonbury, England, or in the area of England. Uh, now, the figure of King Arthur 
was often said to coordinate great spiritual expeditions to search for this relic. Um, because legend says that this relic has the power to heal all wounds, deliver eternal youth, and grant everlasting happiness. Massive, right? Uh, there's one popular Arthurian fear, sorry, I don't know if you've heard it, of the Fisher King. Um, and the Fisher King is said to have had a serious wound that kept him from moving. And he needed the grail to be healed and could only sit and fish near his castle until someone found the magical cup. And the magical cup is able to heal his wound. Uh, now, there is a continued search for the Holy Grail. Continued, even today, um, years later after perhaps King Arthur existed or not, um, people search for this cup itself. And the fascinating part about that is that they imagine it as an actual object as an actual cup and there's a great debate of whether it's a stone cup whether it's a wooden cup whether it's a gold cup with rubies so there's a there's a value to it um and people have spent years of their lives rationalizing why a cup would be of stone or of wood or of gold or etc and years of their life tracing down records that others who have searched for the cup have uh, recorded. So um, right now we don't know where it is, but, um, and in fact, we don't know if it actually existed. Yeah? So this brings me to our conversations around the womb. So the conversations around the womb um, are really fascinating. I want to talk about just a few things, okay? And how the grail is actually the life-giving womb of the mother. Now, we talked about how it's the life-giving womb of Mary Magdalene. And I think that's really a hop, skip, and a jump away from the life-giving womb of any mothers and of all mothers. Yeah. Uh, and one of the scholars that I'd like to use, her name is Rosalind Rossignol. She wrote um, an empirical journal that talks about um, a particular, uh, what do you call it? A particular um, story, French story, that's called La Quest del Saint Graal, which is uh, the quest for the Holy Grail. And... Um, it's sort of a romantic Knights of the Templar story. And by romantic, I don't mean like a love story, but romantic, like um, the idea that it's embellished in this fantastic fiction. Yeah. Now, so she talks about the representation of the Knights Templar, the representation of the, the Grail, the representation of everything. But one of the things that I think she talks about that is really important for us and applicable for us is the fact that she talks about um, how, how the Holy Grail is doing two things simultaneously. It is in one way, absolutely the womb with blood that gives life. And it is in another way, purely misogynistic, right? It is in another way, purely against women or away from women. Um, and and I really thought that that was really fascinating. Um, of course, it in many ways, it represents this idea that both Eve 
so it goes back to this idea that both the the original, let's say, creatress of life, Eve, within Christianity and, and monotheism, Eve, but also the Virgin Mary create life from their wombs. But the way that they create life from their wombs is very different, right? So Eve is, of course, always the sinner, the dark, evil mother, the insatiable sexual mother. Well, the Virgin Mary is that pure mother. And it is because of her pure body and her pure self that Jesus, our God, selects her to... Um, bro jesus in her sacred womb and uh of course give birth uh to christ and you know i mean just as a side note even god could not send his son on this realm without using the organic body of a woman just saying right i mean people don't say that people don't talk about that but even the divine could not literally make a human without the womb yeah. did i say that loud enough okay <laughs> my apologies my apologies for those of you who are listening very closely and my voice is too loud um there is so a few concepts about the way that birth is exemplified and healing is exemplified um the idea that transformation is an act, of, an act of shedding one skin or shedding one part of yourself and growing another. Um, and Jesus is said to have shed his mortal hide, his mortal body, okay, in order to return from death to life, okay? Now, and you know, he, he shed his, his human blood or his human body, sorry, human flesh in order to return from death to, back to, let's say, eternal life. Uh, and the other aspect that we use around the uterus is the shedding of the uterine line, right? When a woman gets her period, that's actually literally what happens. And in fact, if we're talking about transformation, blood is cleansed and rejuvenated every month for women. One can argue that the source of life, blood, is rejuvenated and rebirthed every every month. So there's a link between conception shedding transformation and there's also a link between uh, life and death and conception and death um uh, rosalino gives this really interesting um she says i'll just say what she says there's a link between conception and death which constitutes a contamination of the former and of the mother who conceives who in giving life also gives death and then likewise appear this something this is a story that appears in the Cain and Abel uh, tradition, because Abel was killed by his brother Cain in the very spot where he had been conceived, according to legend. Okay. And so I thought about this because I found this really fascinating that, that actually in giving life, you're also giving death because the very act of living leads to death. And so conception and procreation and the giving of life. So when a woman gives life, when a woman gives birth, by the very virtue of being born, you must die. And so in a way, you're our mothers, your mother, my mother, our mothers, the very existence of our creation and procreation is that we are born to die. Right? I mean, none of us get out alive, right? And so there's this this birth and rebirth, this this can you imagine? a patriarchy that is trying to control the entire world in which the only givers of life and consequently death are women 
And so in order to in order to control that very essence of power, um, you have to give yourself something that gives you equal power. Okay. Now we've talked about in the past how in Genesis one or two, God creates from his mind. And so this idea that mass that men uh, create with thoughts. Okay. And in fact, I'm sorry that I'm saying this again, but in fact, that really now connects me back to this, I, this modern trend of manifestation, the idea that the most um, powerful way to create something is through your thoughts and that your thoughts can create that again is rooted in masculine and the masculine inability to create through the body. And so then they create through their minds. And I'm not saying that thoughts are not great and creation and imagination are not fantastic. Of course they are. Uh, but the primary and actually the sole and only way to create life is to have a womb. Yeah? It is the only way to create life known to humans so far. Yeah, I mean, there's probably some cloning going on and other things that people talk about, but uh, that is not technically creation of life. That is a recreation. But anyways, we can talk semantics later. Uh, so there is this, the, the idea of the Holy Grail then being able to give life, to create life, to give a rebirth, then removes the womb, removes women from that power right removes the mother's body of actual of actual physical birth and like we talked about maternal nurture yeah. and so we've we've heard about the virgin mary often referred to as a holy vessel through which jesus comes um and so it's really fascinating that jesus comes through a holy vessel but then jesus creates supposedly this cup this physical thing in which he pours his own blood and from that moment on, rebirth, salvation, creation, and eternal life is only through the cup and not the very womb that he had to take to get here. Yeah. So, and then we talked a little bit, I don't know if we talked about it uh, too much, but this idea of, of nurturing, right? Um, this idea that the female body, the mother's body feeds you. And in Christianity, what happens is this gets removed from women. This task gets removed from women. And now Jesus, spiritually speaking, not physically, but I mean, technically, you're still eating bread and drinking wine. So I guess it is a kind of physical act. But in, in this removal, women are removed completely from the ability to create and salvation and rebirth and all those power that they had. Because now you have this ritual of the Eucharist in which Jesus is nourishing you or God is nourishing you. Okay. And I mean, you know, you think about it and you think, yeah, this is spiritual nourishment, but there is this really fascinating idea that God, that Jesus says, this is my body. And the only body that nourishes us is women's body. Our mother's bodies are the only bodies. Um, and so I wonder, I made this connection and you tell me what you think. Okay. Um, because this maternal feature, this maternal feature becomes a paternal feature. And so I thought to myself, if feeding is the source of life, first from the mother, is that why we had this push for so many generations of men becoming the providers, of men becoming those that feed and provide us, right? Because men are, in the old days, supposed to go to work and provide for the family. What do they provide? 
money to buy food, nourishment, or often men on farms, for example, would provide food. Now, of course, women were on firms too, and women are now going to work. So that's a different thing. But just this idea of men as providers, right? Um, I wonder if that if that in a way, again, takes away from the fact that the very first provider body that we all have is our mother. And then as we grow, our father becomes the provider, the mother is removed. And if you're a young man, you are expected then to remove yourself from your mother, as Freud goes on with his Oedipal complex, to remove yourself from your mother and then become the provider of your own family, right? By doing something external. In fact, okay, this just, sorry. In fact, as a man, you have to leave your family, go out there and bring back food. Does that make sense? While, while the mother has food within her body, within her household, within her home, right? Fascinating stuff when you think about the way that the grail represents uh, life-giving, um, life uh, feeding, uh, feeding from God's body, right? Um, then becomes the primary source of salvation, not feeding from um, the mother's body, right? Um, so really, really, really fascinating, right? And also this idea that the blood in the cup comes from two things. Number number one, Jesus transmutes his, the wine into his own blood. And then supposedly Joseph of Arimathea gets some blood from the wound uh, that is in the cup. And so that in his dying sort of sacrifice, the blood goes in the cup and that's what gives the cup. It's also it's healing power. And so, again, the idea is that Jesus, like, I can't, I'm sorry. Jesus bleeds from a wound and that blood gives life as opposed to women bleeding every month and that blood gives life. Does that make sense? So here we have a ritual vehicle or a ritual where the figure of the symbolic father or male appropriates yet another maternal function, that of giving life, of incarnation into flesh, right? Of giving salvation, right? And in fact, of even giving death. And so I find it just just fascinating, fascinating that the wound of Jesus, the blood that comes from the wound of Jesus um, can feed men and women, but feed men primarily. So the blood of men feeds men like the Templars and all the other men, feeds men and saves them and gives them eternal life. But the blood of women that has been giving life since the beginning of time is seen as a reproductive task. So you can see why um, the Holy Grail, I think, has been in a sense almost taken back or starting to be taken back. And also you can probably see why I really wanted to do this. Um, I wanted to do this episode uh, because 
this idea, right? This ritual around the incarnation of Jesus in the flesh from an object that represents Mary's womb and then is taken, like I said, outside the body and becomes an object or a figure that is material culture, whether it's wood or stone or, or gold, is really uh, a primary symbol, a pri has primary um, and archaic and primordial meaning. Okay, So then the symbol becomes disassociated from the mother. The symbol of life and life-giving becomes disassociated from the mother. And the grail metaphorically facilitates a vision of rebirth without the mother, eliminating her, replacing her with a paternal masculine God who takes over the primary function of providing nourishment and giving life, but remains uncontaminated by a mother's sexuality and morality. Okay, that's a quote from uh, Rosalini. The idea then is that the patriarchy has, find a, has found a way to create birth, nourishment, and salvation without sex, without morality. The cup has no morality. Without women being involved, without discussing goddess power, female power, mother power, and without discussing womb power and womb wisdom. So I hope that you're as fascinated and mind blown as I am because it never fails. Yeah. It never fails to surprise me at how patriarchy has uh, reassigned life-giving and nurturing and, and, and reproductive power from a mother or a mother god or a goddess or an earth mother or organic mother to a godfather that is, you know, somewhere in the sky. Yeah. And so this is how men, that leading patriarchal sort of authorities, have given themselves the ultimate power. So every time you see that cup, whether you go to church or whether you're watching it on TV or anything, and you see that priest hold up the cup, I want you to remember your mother. Because that is really the symbol that they are holding up. That is truly the symbol that is life-giving, that is salvation, that is rebirth, and that is nurturing. Because while you're in the uterus, while you're in the cup, you are being nurtured, you are protected, you are being fed. And as we've talked about before, we've talked about the cave and the womb, while you're in this cup, actually, something happens that the, the supposed holy grail object cannot do. While you're in the womb, while we are all in the womb, because we all come from a womb, we are in cosmic presence. That is, we are not yet on the outside, a fully formed individual human body. And we are not still in the spiritual realm. We are in the cosmic medium space. And that is something that actually even the cup of this holy grail cannot reproduce. 
because it's a physical thing that you supposedly drink from. Um, there is no cosmic connection, although supposedly drinking the blood gives you salvation. But the cosmic connection happens in the womb. And the true nurturing happens in the womb. And so I suppose the end of my argument is that the Holy Grail is the womb. Whether it's the womb of Mary Magdalene, whether it's the womb or the holy vessel of the Virgin Mary, whether it's the womb of all women that have ever lived and all of time, whether they procreated or not, all female biological bodies have this power incarnate in them. And I think it is lately and recently that more and more women are turning to that power and more and more men are understanding that that power is not antagonistic of them, right? Uh, that because I think we're so used to patriarchal power. And so patriarchal power is control, oppression, authority. Divine feminine power or womb power or whatever you want to call it, goddess power, maternal matriarchal power is not is not like that. In fact, I, I want to say it's the opposite. It's a power that comes from all of us and within all of us and grows out of us. Right. So it's not it's a bottom-up power instead of a top-down power. And so I'm really happy to see that more and more men understand that this is not an antagonism. And yes, there are a lot of women that are angry. There's a lot of rage going on because, you know, female bodies are still being controlled. Why do you think Roe versus Wade was repeated? I mean, the fact that we still have to control female bodies in North America and procreation and recreation and all these kinds of things tells you that they are a threat, right? And that they are objects of power, right? But I understand that there's a lot of rage over the fact that we are being controlled continually. And at some point, something will have to be done, ladies and gentlemen. Um, at some point, we will have to come together and say, no, no body belongs to the state. No literal, physical, organic body belongs to the state, you know. But hopefully, we're, we're getting there soon enough. So I I want to... I want to reiterate that this work towards the divine feminine and this use of the divine feminine is not anti-male, but it is anti-patriarchy. Absolutely, 100%. And so, but patriarchy to me doesn't necessarily define men. It is a system of power in which men hold power, certainly those in authority. Um, but it's, it's, it's not men. I don't know how to explain that. But you know what I'm saying, right? Um, and so we we have we're in this we're in this we're in this tough time right now. We're in this tough time right now because it's there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of rage, there's a lot of back and forth, there's a lot of fall back into old traditions, move forwards. There's a lot of things going on. But to leave you on an optimistic note, I want you to know that the very fact that the system is shaking, that things are shifting, that. There are discussions, debate, even heated, even hard. I wish it could be a bit gentler, but change is not always gentle. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think that we are moving towards positive change, but that it hurts as always uh, in doing so. So thank you so much for joining me in this pod, in this episode today for, for the Goddess Project podcast. 
I hope that you've enjoyed this um, episode as much as I enjoy talking about it. And please, please leave me comments with your thoughts, suggestions, anything. Again, I'm open to all of your feedback, to your opinions, um, to your sources, if you have any. Um, I do enjoy a discussion uh, about different topics or even different ideas that you might have. Uh, please leave them in the comments uh, as gently and respectfully as you can. Uh, most of the people that have come, everyone, actually, everyone that has commented on my videos, I just want to say thank you. You've been amazing. Um, again, we don't have to agree um, on everything or really anything. Um, I do think we have to learn to have discussions, which which I'm hoping that um, that we are. And so thank you so much for joining me um, after the, so I'm going to post after, after the podcast, as you can see, we're going to talk about the grail in Hollywood. I have so much to say <laughs> about the grail in Hollywood, um, but that recording will happen uh, in a minute and after, and I post that on the Patreon. Uh, you can watch it on Patreon or you can listen to it on Patreon. If you are one of the Patreon supporters, you can find my Patreon link just at the top. What is that right-hand corner on my uh, YouTube page or in my link trees uh, on Instagrams or Twitter or everywhere if you'd like to support this podcast. And I would really appreciate it if you did. Um, so other than that, thank you so much for joining me. Um, next week, we're going to look at uh, sirens and mermaids. We're going to have a blast. Um, I'm going to look at how sirens were originally half bird, half female, and when they became associated with mermaids which are half fish half women so we're gonna we're gonna look at some of that stuff and and uh and talk a little bit maybe even about fairy tales and disney and all that fun stuff so thank you so much for joining me today and i hope that you have a fantastic day again hit me up uh on social media or anywhere else that you might find me and uh have the best friday have the best weekend i'll see you all next week